0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So we've been going through 2 Corinthians, calling the series of Good Courage, because I really think that's the, an underlying theme for nearly every passage, is God giving us His courage for the challenges we face um, and it is, isn't it amazing? I mean, it's all through the Bible. God wants to give you courage. He wants to give you his strength so that you can face whatever comes with the knowledge of his presence, his help, his love. That's so beautiful. Today we're looking at courage from, uh, from, this, from this perspective right here. Courage from our sufficiency. So if you're like, What? Just unpack that a little bit. Courage from our sufficiency. This text raises what I think is a really hard question. I don't know, maybe you have to be, maybe it's easier to feel this question as you get older. The question is this Am I sufficient? Am I enough? Am I enough? Have I been enough? Am I good enough? Have I done it right enough? Anybody ever feel that haunting you sometimes? The world questions our sufficiency, right? Are you smart enough? Are you beautiful enough? Are you politically correct enough? Have you made enough of an impact? We get questions regarding our sufficiency when it comes to relationships. Are you loving enough? Are you faithful enough? Have you been successful enough? You hear the word right again, enough, enough, enough. We feel, we question our own sufficiency. Do you ever feel haunted by this? I'll be honest with you. Have I I been a good enough husband? A good enough father? A good enough pastor? Sometimes I'm plagued with doubts that I, I haven't. I'm not. Sufficiency. Maybe you feel that. Am I enough as a student, as a friend? Am I enough at work? Am I enough to face this challenge that's coming at me? Am I enough as a mom? Am I enough as a teacher? Am I, am I enough? Are you sufficient? You can probably see how this question goes together with courage. If you feel that you're totally insufficient, you're not enough, you don't have enough, how much courage are you gonna have to face your challenges? None. At the same time, you don't want to invent a fake sufficiency. Some voices out there will want to tell you, well, just look inside and you'll find that you're enough. And we can puff ourselves up with this fake enoughness, but pretty soon reality will stick a needle in that one. Um, Honestly, sometimes I'm not enough. I haven't done it right. I haven't been good enough. I've failed. So what does that mean for me? So what would it be like if we could find an honest sufficiency, a real sufficiency, somehow, that made us enough and that gave us courage to face what life's bringing because we know we have the sufficiency we need. That's what I'm hoping we'll take from this text. So we're gonna go through this passage in three steps. Number one, the need for sufficiency, the need. Number two, the true source for sufficiency. The true source. And number three, see some of the courage that sufficiency brings. Need for sufficiency, true source of sufficiency, the courage that sufficiency can bring. So let's just dive right into our text. We're looking at number one, the need for sufficiency will be chapter two, starting verse 12. Hope you follow along. We're gonna begin here in verses 12 to 13 with a little background of our text. Again, Paul's been working through his travel plans with his church and why he did what he did. And we see here that Paul is writing out of intense concern, he's writing out of intense concern. So look, verse 12, when I came to Troas, uh, first question, why was he in Troas? Verse 12, help me out, it's a rainy day. You can tell me what the text means. When I came to Troas to what? Preach the gospel. Even though a door was open for me in the Lord. So in other words, it's, it's kind of working. He's preaching the gospel. People are open to this. Wow, keep rocking. Verse 13, my spirit was not at rest. So I'm uncertain. I'm doubting. I'm troubled. I'm not content. I got it. Something's wrong. Why is that? Verse 13. Couldn't find my brother Titus. Well, what's going on here? Background in, in, on this this letter and his relationship with his church, later on in this letter you see um, Titus was bringing an answer from the Corinthians. Paul had sent them, a, instead of going to visit them, things had gotten so nasty, he decided to skip that visit. Remember we've been over some of this? And he sent them a tough letter instead. They needed to sort themselves out. And so he was, he was deeply concerned about how things were going there and Titus was bringing the response to him on what is, our, what is our relationship like? And so Paul is so concerned about his relationship with them, it's hard for him to do anything else. He's riding out of uncertainty, doubt, pain. So he, he doesn't find Titus, and he, so he has to move on until he finds him, and we'll hear the rest of that story later. But the point is, you see, he's riding out of uncertainty and pain, difficulty. And yet, even in all this, look what Paul says in Verse 14. But what? Thanks be to God. He's he's always got courage, doesn't he? When you face uncertainty, pain, and difficulty, is your heart able, able to leap out and say, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Why? Verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Always. What's always mean? Always, that's right, that's right. Always, when is he there leading you? Always. We sang it this morning, he's sovereign over us. He's leading us in triumphal procession. Jesus is always leading you, and if, you're, if you've trusted in him, you belong to him, he's always leading you in his victory somehow. Sharing it with you, that's why he's thanking God. And we need a little cultural background to understand this image Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is actually a, a technical term of high significance for the Roman world. There was actually something called a triumph. This, this would be a lot of fun, I think, to, to watch this one. A triumph is an honor paid to a victorious Roman general. So here's the idea. You're the general in charge of all the Roman legions, and you dominate your enemy. Your region is totally conquered, there's no enemy left, you vanquished them all, and so the military campaign is finished, you've earned land for Rome, and you're, you're coming home in victory, and so they would throw you this humongous parade throughout the city of Rome, and so you would go through the streets of Rome on the way to the capital, and there was quite an order to it, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some of this parade processional order, Okay. First, you would have the state officials in the Senate, you know, walking by. Oh, there's, you know, Rose Bowl Parade, maybe. They're doing their wave, you know. They're going through. Next, you'd get trumpeters and heralds, you know. Big time, here's what's coming. Third, the spoils of the victory would be on display. So sometimes they would actually have models of ships or buildings they had conquered. If you're a Bible history buff, General Titus, different Titus from this Titus, when he conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, he was bringing the seven-branch candlesticks and the golden table from the temple, walking it through the streets of Rome. So you'd you'd have spoils on display. Then fourth, you'd have a big bull, and that's going to be the sacrifice for the gods who have helped us in our victory. Five, you would have the captives that were taken. Some are leaders of the enemy. We're gonna execute them. Others are just slaves. We're going to sell them. Six, you'd have musicians and priests. And the priests are swinging these things that are censers uh, of incense. And so there's this big big stink, big fragrance of celebration all over the city. And then finally, after all this hoopla The last thing you'd have would be the general in his victory and he's usually pulled by four horses and he's on his big chariot and his family's with him and everybody's shouting, triumph, triumph. So put yourself in Gladiator, the movie or something and and this is what's going on here. It's important to understand this because Paul is gonna reach deeply from this illustration. First of all, he said, who's the ultimate general? Who's won complete and total triumph over everything? Jesus is the general. Jesus has won. Jesus has totally de- defeated our ultimate enemies of sin, of death, enmity with God. And Jesus, He leads us in victory. And so our whole lives, this is the irony of the Christian life in this age, the already but not yetness right? Jesus has won. Do we always feel it in our everyday circumstances? No. So Paul is saying, in my uncertainty, my hesitations, my doubt, my pain, thanks be to God, because I'm going down the triumph parade with Jesus. He's already won. I'm sharing in his victory. But, but this is a mess, I know. But he's won. He's won. Paul is stealing this cultural image and planting new meaning into it, and he continues to do that in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So you remember that part of that image of the parade? You got the priest swinging the stuff and it's making a big smell, and everybody in the city is like, smells like a triumph, I guess. Paul says, That smell... Going throughout the city. That's us. That's Christians. We smell. We're the aroma. Now, follow follow along more carefully in these phrases. We're the aroma of Christ to who? To God. So now he's using kind of a a different image the the smell of the sacrificial system from the law, where a, a beautiful sacrifice smells good to God. It's worship. And he, and he takes our prayers, and he takes our worship, and he enjoys it. So, so now that we're in Christ, we, we, we stink like Jesus, okay? We, uh, to be more eloquent, we, we have the aroma of Christ. We smell like Jesus. And first of all, we smell like Jesus to God. And he's like, mmm, smells good. He's pleased with us in Christ. He loves us in Christ. But we're also an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and who are perishing. Let me sum that up for you, the whole world. We smell like Jesus to the whole world. How is this possible? You remember verse 12, what did Paul go to Troas to do? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Uh, Remember this reality, right, Christians? If you trust Jesus... Guess who you represent all the time? Jesus Christ. You represent him. You think of the images in scripture. Um, the body of Christ. Who are we? We're the body of Christ. So Jesus' hands, his feet, his presence in the world. Where are people supposed to be able to see, smell, hear of Jesus? Us. And is that, that's just when we meet a church, right? Just when you sing a couple songs, hear a sermon... Then you can head off and, whoo, pressure's off, don't have, to, don't, have to, don't have to represent Jesus anymore. No, when do we represent Jesus? All the time. At work, yep, with your friends, yeah. On Facebook, yeah, yeah. Even social media, uh-huh, yep. In your, in your marriage, yes, with your friends, yeah. With your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, yeah. At work, yeah, at school, yes. Every time, everywhere, all the time, we represent Christ. And it's a huge honor. And it's a huge responsibility. Look what Paul says about this. Smell. Among those who are being saved, we're a fragrance from life to life. Nobody ever comes to Jesus completely and fully without the church somehow. Somehow. And, and so when someone comes to Christ, at some point they're going to connect with the church. And that's going to grow them. It's going to help them. And, and it works like this. You smell like Jesus as a Christian. And when somebody, their hearts are open, their, their eyes are open, they want Jesus, they smell him in you. And they come and they find Jesus' life from your smell of Jesus. Jesus. And I think it continues and continues. As we glorify, represent Jesus together, we grow in Jesus, life to life. So when someone loves Jesus, they love people who love Jesus. When someone's interested in Jesus, they wanna be with people who are interested in Jesus. We represent him. but Then there's this hard negative as well. What do we smell like to those who hate the triumph of Jesus? We smell like death. We smell like death. Um, I, I love being a pastor like 99% of the time. Um, and, you know, uh, w- one way that's just maybe a little unique for me is it, my, the faith comes out in conversations more easily for me. If you're talking, you know, if you're talking about what you do for work, it doesn't take you right to spiritual things, maybe as explicitly as my job does. So I'll fish like this sometimes. Hey, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm whatever. Cool. Ask a couple questions. And I'm, you going to ask, you know? What do you do for work? I'm a pastor. Wow, people's responses. They don't even, they don't even know me. And sometimes, oh, that's awesome. It has nothing to do with me. It has something to do with what they already believe, what they already love, what they already care about. And other people, man, build the wall. <laughs> other people, man, I'm out, I'm gone, it's cold in the room, it's like, it's like I stink. I do stink. The fragrance of that word. And we smell like death to death for some people. They don't want Jesus as king. And they really have a problem with people who like that idea. Doesn't it raise the idea of the responsibility we have to represent Christ? Now, you could take this, and it's it's worth a little parenthesis here, Paul, when he talks about smelling like death to death, he's not saying I did it wrong and therefore people don't like Jesus because I misrepresented him. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying when we do it right, we smell like death to people. But it it is worth a place in the conversation to say sometimes we smell like death to people not because they don't like Jesus but because we were jerks. (laughs) Isn't that worth a place in this conversation on representing Jesus? Do you you have you have a time or a moment in your life? Maybe it's right now where to your wife or to your friends or to your family or at work, you're like, I smelled like death and it wasn't because I was smelling like Jesus. I was smelling like hypocrisy. And it's just, this idea that we represent Christ, look what question goes with it. End of verse 16. Who is what? Who is sufficient for this? Who is sufficient for this? Do you feel like you have enough, like you're enough? Not only just to face the challenges you're facing, not only just to handle the circumstances in your life. I mean, how do you feel like you don't know if you're enough just for these challenges? I don't think, I don't know if I can do it. Then much less, do you ever wonder if you're enough to do this in a way that represents Jesus well? Sometimes I'm like, I, they picked the wrong person to be the pastor. I can't do this. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I, so many times I haven't been enough. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you see the need for sufficiency? Especially as a Christian. You represent Jesus. Are you enough? I'm just left. Who is sufficient for these things? Let's find the source of our sufficiency. Hopefully you felt the need for it. Let's find the source of it. We're gonna see the evidence, uh, just try to understand this passage. The f- verses one to three of chapter three, we're gonna see evidence of Paul's sufficiency. Part of the conversation in 2 Corinthians is there's these false teachers, there's this uh, small group of troublemakers at the church in Corinth, and they're really slandering the apostle. They're, they're slandering Paul saying, you know, He's, he's a fake, he's a hypocrite, he's not a true apostle. We shouldn't trust him. So that's part of all these conversations. And so Paul's in the awkward place. Have, have, you, have you ever had to argue for your love for someone when they're doubting it? You have to say, no, I promise I love you. Look at this. And anything positive you say about yourself, what does it sound like? Boasting. And yet you somehow still have to... I think the, the way to relate to this problem is like is being a parent. Maybe a parent of a teenager, okay? Maybe. And so your teenager one day, they've lost it. You just hate me. You don't love me at all. I'm going to go be with my sophomore friends. They're the ones who truly care about me. (laughs) And then as a parent, I'm imagining you're like, am I really going to have to argue to this person about who loves them? (laughs) Have you been around the last... 16 years. That's what Paul's saying here. Look, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you? Chapter 3, verse 1. So Paul's like, six years ago, I went to Corinth at the risk of my life. I stayed with you for like two years to tell you about Jesus. I'm the, God be the glory, Paul would say, but I'm the reason you're a church. Verse 1, do I have to write a letter of recommendation to you about me? Can you imagine mom being like, do I really need a recommendation to show you, honey, that I love you? I've changed your diapers, I made you, yeah, on and on. Paul is saying, hey church, so the, so the false teachers are coming with their letters of recommendation, look how great we are. And, and the church, some of the church is doubting Paul, and he's like, do I really need a letter of recommendation with you? I'm the reason you're here. No, you're evidence of my sufficiency, that's what Paul's saying. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. You yourselves are what? You're my letter of recommendation. The fact that you're a church shows my ministry was legit to you. In fact, it goes even further. I love this language. Verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from who? From Christ. What does he say about the church? They're a letter from who? Who wrote this letter Jesus wrote the letter, Fountain of Life. You are a letter to the world from Jesus. Jesus is writing the world with a message, and the message is your life, and your heart, and what you say. Look at what he says. It's important for what's coming. Verse three You show you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with what? Not written with ink. What's the ink Jesus is using? Written with the spirit of the living God. And what did he write his letter on? Is it fancy uh, letterhead? What's the letter written on? Hearts, hearts, what you love. What you love is Jesus' letter to the world. Wow, that's evidence of Paul's sufficiency And it leads us to the conversation about the source of our sufficiency. How can you find that you're enough when you have this haunting suspicion that you're not? How can you find it? Here's the source, look at verse four. Such is the confidence that we have, what? Through Christ. Where's this confidence come? Through Christ, verse five. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Where does Paul not look for his sufficiency? Capital N, capital O, capital T. Not look for his sufficiency. Self. Parts of the voices out there in our culture want to say, look inside and you'll find everything that you need. You'll find everything you need to be prideful, deceived, lost, Paul is—he's not—he's not a doormat. He's not saying nothing I do is good. He just said, "Hey, church, you're the evidence of my sufficiency." But he still says, "My sufficiency is not from me. I have sufficiency." Doesn't he have courage in his sufficiency? I have it. It's not from me. Where's it from? Our sufficiency is from God. And here's the kicker—the doorway into this sufficiency—who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? A new covenant, a new covenant. So you hear it already. You, you need courage from real and honest sufficiency. Where are you gonna find your real and honest sufficiency? The new covenant. So now you gotta put your theology hat on, right? Do you see how theology leads to actual courage? You gotta understand something about the new covenant to have the courage you need. What is it? Well, let's just, let's remember some of the back of what, um, Paul's talking about Old Covenant, New tes- covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. He says a couple things about the Old. What was the uh, writing, uh, writing method? Remember? Ink on what? On stone. What does that remind you of? On a stone. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Look what the letter does, that letter in verse 6. Paul says he's made it sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills ink on stone kills that's the old covenant here in this passage what's the new covenant instead of ink what do you have spirit instead of stone what do you have hearts instead of death what do you have life ink stone death spirit hearts life Difference between the two covenants. Why is Paul bringing up the difference between the two covenants in this passage? And what does it have to do with sufficiency? Well, part of it is, a lot of times, the false teachers Paul would have to wrestle with, they want you to forget about Jesus and go back to the old covenant. They want you to find your goodness from what you do. So he's he's, he's always in this fight. He's probably in it again here. Second thing is it has everything to do with sufficiency. Everything, everything. So the law, 10 commandments. Can you name a couple? So many good ones, yeah. Uh, no other gods before me is probably the biggest one. Love God the most all the time in every way. In fact, uh, Martin Luther said if you kept the first command, you wouldn't even need the next nine. Automatic. But the next nine help you understand what it means to do the first one? Always love God. Is that a good command or a bad command? It's great. It's great. How about never lie? How many of you tired people lying to you? Faithless, flaky people lying to you, betraying to you. You sick of lying? Me too. It's a great command. You can't have society unless we keep our contracts. Yeah, I got this haunting reality about myself. What have I done a couple million times? I've lied. Do you see how the letter kills? The letter is the standard it's the standard. It's the law. And we always want to look to a law to find our sufficiency. We want to look to a standard to find our sufficiency. So if I want to be... Pulling one out of a hat. If I want to be a good father, a sufficient father, where could I look? Oh, I read an article in uh, you know some men's magazine about what a father should be, and I do those things. Sweet, I'm good. Or I can think of my friends who i probably a better father than they are. Oh, see, I'm good, what have I done? I found a standard and I, oh, I measured up to it. Or if you wanna play the other side, deeply insecure, I'm looking at somebody else, they're a better father than me, I can't measure up, I'm not good enough. We're always looking for a law to find our sufficiency. Are you good enough? Well, what have I done? What does the letter do? It kills, because if you stare straight on at God's law, Because perfect law, what will you find about yourself? Sufficient or insufficient? Insufficient. If you look, it sounds heavy, it is heavy. It condemns, the law condemns. But I'm not bringing this up to make you hopeless, oh, I'll never be enough. I actually, I just wanna destroy the false hope. That's what Paul's doing, he's destroying the false hope. If you look to a law to find your sufficiency, you'll either be prideful, because you have a fake law, No one's really using, especially not God. Oh, I'm better than my worst friend. So what, right? Not a real standard. Um, So that'll kill you because you'll be fake. Or if you if you if you're honest, you straight on look at God's law, and then you're like, I got an F. I got an F. I'm insufficient. Letter kills. What do you do? There's going to be a new covenant. There's a new covenant. There's a new covenant. The old covenant told us about the new covenant. I'll show you a verse from Ezekiel, a nugget from scripture about the new covenant, what it'll be like. It's Ezekiel 36. It's written in the context of when Israel is basically a dumpster fire because they were insufficient. They did not love God or keep his law and they faced exile and domination. But there's a promise here from God and the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 25 what are the first two words in verse 25 I will I will who's talking God so the first thing about the new covenant is who's going to who's going to be the major player the major actor the one doing stuff God is I will I will what verse 25 I'll sprinkle clean water on you you'll be clean from all your uncleanness what does that mean I'm going to wash away all your sin, all the stain, all the shame, all the failure, all the brokenness, all the graffiti that's on your mind and your heart and in your life. I'm going to scrub it off. I'm going to make it like it was never there. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to forgive you. I'll do that. Verse 26, what else is he going to do? I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. Uh, verse 25, from your idols, I'll cleanse you. I'll remove the heart of stone, 26, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So what does it mean, a new heart? Heart of stone was hard toward God. God, stay away, I don't want this. Anytime you hear about God and his love, it's like, bzz, bzz, it's a BB off concrete. It's not going in. You got idols you love instead. You're looking to something else to be your God. Heart of stone, I'll do it my own way. I got this instead. And God says, I'm gonna I'm gonna. Melt that thing down. I'm gonna chip all that crust off. I'm gonna give you a, a beating heart to where you, you, you trust my love and, you, and you're done with the idols. You're all in on me. You trust my love and you're done with the idols. I'm gonna give you a new heart, soft heart towards God. And then verse 27, what else are he gonna do? I'll put my spirit within you, which will cause you to do What? You'll walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to obey my rules. So instead of the law being this cursed burden that condemns you, you're free from the law, you're washed, you're forgiven, you're loved. And now the law's on your heart to where you're like, this is actually beautiful, I want this. I want what God is commanding me. I like it, I see why, I see what. it's, It's beautiful to me, it's true to me. That's what's gonna happen in the new covenant. Total change how do you get it? How do you get this new covenant? Luke twenty two, verse twenty. Love what Jesus says here. It's a famous line. We say it here at church, once a month, nearly. It's when Jesus is eating the Last Supper with his disciples. What does he see? What does he say? Luke twenty two, twenty. Likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant in my blood. Jesus bought the new covenant for you. When you trust in him, the new covenant is happening to you. You're forgiven. Your heart is changed. You want to start to live for him because you're new. You're brand new. And here, what does this have to do with sufficiency? It has everything to do with sufficiency because by the law, right, letter kills, I'm not enough. But now look at Jesus. Who kept the law for you? Jesus, and how did he do? What grade did he get? Perfect, perfect, and when you trust him, when you trust your life to him, what does he give you? That's what theologians call justification, he makes you, here, take my perfection, it's like you did it perfectly, which now, I mean, imagine, now before God when God looks at you through the lens cuz you're in Christ you're connected to Christ through the glasses of Jesus he looks at you and what does he see? Does he go, "Oh, insufficient, you fail, you stink, get out of my face." Is that what he says? Or does no, he sees the perfection of Jesus and what does he say about you? Sufficient, perfect, enough. Jesus kept the law for you. He's more than enough. What about the cross? What's he doing there on the cross? In his death, in his blood, you, you know you got sins that need to be paid for. Some of them it haunts you. You want to atone for it. You want to make up for it. You can't. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He, he was paying for it. He was taking it. Is it enough? Did he die for all your sins, everyone? It's enough. You're cleansed. He rose in triumph. See the connection there? <laughs> triumph to earn your Adoption. Before the Father. Is that enough? Enough. He reigns for you. He's given you his spirit. Where's your sufficiency, church? Jesus. In myself, I'm not enough, but I'm enough. Why? Because of Jesus. I'm enough. I'm enough. I've seen people cry over this, and I think I have. When your insufficiency haunts you so much, before God, or what you've done in the past, or in a relationship you're in now, or a task you have to face, and you just feel, I'm not enough. You feel like a ghost. You feel like you can't carry the burden. You feel like you're not gonna make it. To hear Jesus' voice say to you, I'm enough for you, and in me, you're enough. Oh, let it land. What's the source of your sufficiency? Jesus. Can that give you courage? Can I give you courage? Here we are. If you've trusted Jesus, you got a calling, right? Go out from here and what do you wanna smell like? You just wanna reek like Jesus, aroma of Jesus. You wanna smell like Jesus in everything. Your challenges, your relationships, in everything. Are you enough? Part of you says, I'm not enough. Are you enough in Christ? I'm enough in Christ. He's enough. Does it give you courage? It gives you courage. Why? I'll give you a few thoughts on this. Number one, you have a foundation. So when you fall, when in moment whatever, you slipped up, you messed it up, all the condemnation hits you. See, you're a loser. See, you're lost. See, it's over. You failed. Get out of here. You stink. When all that hits and you fall down, and what do you fall onto? Christ. What does he tell you in the gospel? I love you, you're forgiven, get up. Though the righteous man falls, I can't remember the proverb, a lot of times. What's he do again? That's the whole point. He gets up. Get up. You have a foundation of Christ. You're loved, you're accepted, you already have an identity in him of sufficiency. You're a beloved child of God. You're enough in Christ. Nobody can take that from you. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance. Go with courage. You also have power. You do, you have power. Who's with you now? The Spirit is with you. What's he writing on our hearts? The law, which means means we can have an entire attitude of Whatever, whatever role I'm in, whatever challenge I face, God will give me what I need to be faithful to him. I, I rely on, what I, on this truth all the time. God will never call me to do anything he won't also empower me to do. Nothing. He'll never call you to do anything that he won't empower you to do. That's not a pump up on your pride. We blew this, we blew this urban legend up a couple weeks ago. You ever heard the line, God will never give you more than you can handle? Ah, <laughs> what a joke. Okay, P- Paul said it in chapter one, we were burdened beyond life itself. So the apostle said, I had way more than I can handle. So let's, if, if, you, if, you like the, if you like the phrase, the bumper sticker version, God will never give you more than he can handle in you. How about that? God will never give you more than what he will empower you to do. That's courage. You have the power. The Spirit's gonna write his law on your heart. You trust him, you obey him. And and the beautiful thing is, this doesn't have to lead to to bombastism, you know, like, um, you could take this, right? The Spirit's written his law on my heart, which means I'm always right. (laughs) Don't do that, right? In fact, a lot of times, the, the greatest courage we need is to say that we're wrong messed it up some of you in this room how if I said repeat after me I was wrong you'd be like I was you wouldn't be able to get it out you ever feel that way is it is it hard for anybody here to be like I was wrong it can be really hard it takes courage well whoa (laughs) well done how does the gospel give you the courage to say you were wrong The reason you don't wanna say you're wrong is because you're afraid it affects your whole sense of self. You're afraid, when you can't say I was wrong, you're afraid it means I'm a failure and I'm lost and I have no value. That's why it's so hard to say it. But when your value is already in Christ, then you don't lose your value because you were wrong. You're already loved and forgiven. I was wrong and I'm still loved. And I'm still okay because of Jesus. I can say I'm wrong, how can I do this right? I'm sufficient even to change because of the power of the Spirit through the gospel in me. Do you see this courage? Because you have the power of the Spirit. You also have, you have a foundation, you have power, you also have validation. Don't forget who you are. Church, you're a letter written by whom? Jesus. Sincerely. Jesus Christ on the bottom. You have his name on you, you have his call, you have his smell, You're va- you are validated as a child of God in Christ. Doesn't matter what the world says or how they feel or what they say or how they mock, you got a bigger name. Does his validation give you courage? It does me. And finally, you have victory, right? You had victory already, it's yours. Verse 14, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Even though I might be losing right here, even though I'm uncertain right there, even though I'm in pain over here, I've already won. You've already won because Jesus has already won for you. And even in the mess, it's on the road of his victory parade. Isn't that awesome? You're undefeated. You're undefeated because you share the victory of Christ. He's going to pull you through it. Are you enough, church? Are you sufficient for what he's called you to be and to do? You are. It's not in yourself. It's in Christ in you. It's in his gospel, his life, death, and resurrection. It's in his spirit working in you, giving you power. sharing the victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory you give us in Jesus. And you're enough. You're enough to make us enough. I pray for everybody here, Lord. If there's anybody who's not, not a Christian right now, they haven't trusted you, I pray that the message of the new covenant would bring them home, that they would see that they can't keep your law and that other laws are not worth much, and they would trust Jesus, that he obeyed perfectly for them, that he paid for their sins on the cross, that he rose from the dead. They'd trust their life to him. I pray that would happen even now. And Lord, for those of us who do trust you and know you, remind us again. It's true, we're not enough in ourselves, but you are enough in us. Um, Give us courage from your love, from your acceptance, from the identity we have in you. Give us courage from the power we have by your spirit to face what you've given us, to do it with a good, pure smell of Jesus Christ. Everything everything we say, everything we do, because we know you've won. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.